This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt podcast. I like you. You have balls. Hello and welcome to another episode of the How Not to Make a Movie podcast. I'm Alan Katz. Gil will be with us shortly. Before we set sail, you know, the routine, hit the like button if there's one within hitting distance. But better yet, please subscribe to our podcast, to our YouTube channel, to our website. There is so much going on around here that I think you'll enjoy. I would be remiss if I let you miss it. We don't want that to happen, do we? Gil and I first worked with Jackie George, our guest, when we took over running Tales from the Crypt at the very start of season three. Jackie worked for Warner Brothers and Silver Pictures at the time on movies like Die Hard, Richie Rich, and Demolition Man. Working for Joel took considerable balls to begin with. But for a woman working for Joel at the executive level, that took uber balls. Jackie was Joel's executive, his eyes and ears on various sets when he couldn't be there. Kind of a, a fixer. Like Ray Donovan, but with a lower body count. When you meet Jackie, her working for Joel seems like a total non-starter. On the one hand, you have an over-the-top, overbearing, egomaniacal movie producer with the attention span of a gnat. And on the other, an extremely competent, talented, smart woman with zero tolerance for other people's bullshit, especially when it's male bullshit. Yet Jackie stuck it out with Joel for three years. And boy, does she have Joel stories to tell. Hollywood has changed a lot since Jackie first arrived from Erie, Pennsylvania by way of Boston in the late 1970s. It's no bedrock of equality and equal treatment today, but it really was a lot worse before back when Jackie was learning the ropes and then trying to deal with all that unfairness. When Jackie first landed in LA, she knew very little about the movie business. All she did know was that she was a, a huge movie fan enthralled by the flickering images up on the big screen. Her mission somehow become part of its creation. Having an iron will, the willingness to take chances and more balls than her three brothers combined, Jackie found her way into the movie business. In the mid-1980s, female executives were still too few and too far between. They had to be three or four times the producer any man was. And the icing on that disgusting cake, they also had to tolerate constant sexual predation from their co-workers and their bosses. Alas, the reason she had to tolerate it was because we all tolerated it and allowed it to flourish. But that's a conversation for another podcast, which we will. Jackie tells in this podcast how she successfully navigated those tricky shoals for as long as she could. Along the way, she experienced and saw some truly remarkable head-spinning things, some of the juiciest of which he's going to share here. It takes balls for anyone to conquer Hollywood in any way. It takes the biggest balls of all if you're female. Here's Jackie. So how are you? I'm pretty good. It's been a hell of a week. Um, I, uh, there's a lot of young filmmakers here, and I've been trying to help them out a lot. And um, one of them asked me if I knew movie magic, and I said, yeah, 100 years ago. <laughs> you know. So I took his script and broke it down, and I made a schedule, and I thought, Oh, this is why I stopped doing this. That's a lot of work. Yeah. That's a lot of work, you know? Did, did you finish it? It's a lot of work. I finished it yesterday, and now I'm going to meet with him, the writer-director, this week, and say, 
all right, now how do you want to shoot this thing? <laughs> Let's sort it out. Let's figure it out. Yeah, I did it. It comes back. It's like a, I don't know, you know, it's like a hundred years back there that you learned the program, but it came back. So it makes me feel, feel good. Cause my dad, my dad uh, died from Alzheimer's. So every time I forget something, I'm like, uh Oh, watch out, <laughs> watch out, you know, <laughs> but it's good to see. You. I think we, I think we've made it through the war. Okay. Right. We're still sitting here or wherever it is that we're sitting. Yeah, exactly. After your time in the wars, you went home to Erie. I actually went home twice. I went home once, I took a sabbatical for 18 months because my dad had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And it was, my father was a very Italian coach, athlete, and, um, it was too much for my mom to handle. So I went back for just a short amount of time that ended to be 18 months until we had to put him in a facility. And then I went back out to LA. And then um, unfortunately, I lost my oldest brother. And after my oldest brother passed away, my mom just went downhill. So it was at that time that I said, you know what, I think LA and I are done. <laughs> I think we're, I think the marriage to LA is over. And I came home and took care of my ma my mom for about a year until she died. And so then I decided to stay. What year was that? You know, I think it was about seven years ago. And then, you know, I came back and forth. I was going Erie, L.A., go to San Francisco, see people, be in L.A. And then when COVID hit, I haven't been out in, in since before COVID. Hmm. So I'm trying to get out there this spring. Well, if, if you do, <laughs> well, hey. Uh, have a party absolutely have a you uh all right so but ultimately you've now come home to the place to, from whence to the place from whence you came yes so you grew up in erie i did i grew up um not too far from where i live now about five or six blocks away from the bay right mm -hmm. lake erie and you know you forget as a kid how beautiful it is until you come back as an adult and it's like, I live on Lake Erie, one of the Great Lakes. It's crazy, you know, and it's so beautiful and it's vast and it's uh, cold and it's hot. You know, it's cold in the winter, but we've had unseasonably warm winters. Um, you're, don't, you're, don't, you're, you're just down yeah. the road a piece from Buffalo. We're between Buffalo and Cleveland, right on the lake. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you get the same kind of snow that Buffalo gets? This year we haven't. I think we've only had 20 inches of snow. And I you know, I mean, I remember when I first came back, there were eight feet, you know. Wow. So, but don't tell anybody there's climate change because that's, you know, we're not allowed to say that. Oh, sorry. No, no, I mean, I'm just being facetious, but you know what I'm saying. As you were growing up in Erie, all right. At what point did you fall in love with movies and head out west? What, Where did all that come from? Well, as a kid, our family backyard joined with uh, another friend of my dad's named Vinnie Marchant. And his daughter, Joanna, and I, his, I was the um, stage manager at the Warner Theater. And the Warner Theater in Erie is one of the last standing theaters built by the Brothers War, uh, Warner. And it was a vaudeville house. And it's it's stunning. They've since put so many million to refurbish it. And it's gorgeous. But he was the stage manager, so every weekend he would let us sneak through the back door, and she and I would sit there all day Saturday and all day Sunday and watch movies. And, you know, my mom knew as long as I was there, I was okay. 
And I and sometimes we would stay for, you know, to, it was a double feature and the cartoons and all that stuff. And I just thought that it was, it was a thing that allowed me to get out of my head. And also my, my family was, it was a little tumultuous. My dad, Italian, my mother, Russian, it was like, you know, there was a little of that going on. And so it was a great escape for me to, to go into that movie theater. And it was so beautiful. And I just felt like that was home. Do you remember the mm -hmm. first movie that you saw? That No, I'm not sure what I ate yesterday. So no, I, can't. I, I don't remember. I just remember maybe it was a Western and maybe because my sister was older, it might've been Elvis. And she told me I should go see it. You know, I, I don't remember though. I just knew that that image on the screen was pretty amazing. And if it could calm my crazy brain, I thought it was such a wonderful relief, you know? What made you think that you could be part of the process that created those images on the screen? Um, maybe growing up here and realizing that as a woman, after a college, you could be a nurse or a secretary or a teacher. And I said, yeah, no, I don't think so. And I went to Boston first. I was married. I got married very young and my ex-husband uh, went to Berkeley School of Music, College mm. of Music. Mm -hmm. So I lived there for a while. And then after he graduated, we said we could either move to New York or L.A. And we decided the weather in L.A. was better. So we drove to L.A. And I was very um, naive. What and year was that? What, what, what year was that, Jackie? I'm, I'm sorry. See, oh. you're asking me facts. I can't even remember. I don't yeah, yeah. know. I just know I was in my 20s. Ball, well, then, I, but, then ballpark, ballpark. Are we talking late middle middle seventy late seventies? Okay, cool. And then um, I went to you know knocked on doors like I'd go to Paramount's Human Resources and say I want a job, and they would look at me and like oh, yeah right okay you and but I did I went to every single studio and applied for a job, and then I became a bartender at the Sheraton Universal Hotel, and I was the first female bartender they ever had. And, you know, everybody stayed there back then because of Universal's, you know, the, the whatever that was, the amphitheater, I think. Yeah. So Kelly Savalas lived in there at the time. The Eagles would stay there. The Harlem Glow. Everybody. Everybody stayed there. And there was, a, there was a guy that came to the bar. He was living in the hotel at the time, I think, going to divorce. And we became really good friends. And after a while, he said to me, what is a smart girl like you doing here attending bar? And I said, I'm just making a living, you know. And it turned out to be my mentor, Peter McGregor Scott. He was editing this little whorehouse in Texas over at Universal. Now, when I thought, oh, sure, you know, this guy's trying to pick me up, this little redheaded girl, right? And he said, well, I'll come over and see what I do for a living. And he left to pass for me at Universal and I thought, I hope it's not porn. That's all I could think of. I hope I'm not going to go watch some porn. And when I walked in, and, as you drove onto the as you drove onto the Universal lot, you thought that. That's how naive I was, though. And so I I remember it was the Alfred Hitchcock Theater, and I walked into this mixing sound stage, and I just thought, Are you serious? And so I took a seat and I stayed for the whole session. And afterwards, he said, What do you think? And I shook his hand and I said, When do I start? When do I start? Take us back to that moment. Now, okay, yes, as you said, you walked on to a, a major film studio lot, drove on, <laughs> yes. naively thinking, God, they they might make porno here. 
So you had no, you were in love with those images up on the screen. You wanted to be part of that process. You had really no idea how the process happened. None, none. And you walked into the door and suddenly the, the reality of the process, and it's an amazing, complicated process filled with crap. Uh, well, what was it, think, what was that first impression as you walked through that door? I think I became that little six, seven, eight-year-old girl again, like walking into the Warner Theater and then watching Peter work his magic, doing sound effects, you know, um, music, the, and all of it piecing together. And I had a degree in English. I graduated with a degree in English. But it was, to me, it was just the complexity and watching him maneuver it like, a conductor, you know, watching him mix that, you know, and, and then seeing Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds on that huge screen. And then listening to these guys go, you know, Peter would say, give me another eighth of a second on that, whatever, you know, on that oboe. And I thought, how does he know that? You know, it, it was just, and so I guess my curiosity at that point said, I want to do what he does. I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'm going to work with this guy and he's going to teach me a lot of stuff. And he did. I imagine it also changed the way that you understood movies, how you, if the next time you went to the movies, I I, I can't imagine you, you watched or, or heard it the same way. It took me a while to get to that point because I think the, the first time I worked with Peter, it was, I was nervous because I didn't have a film education. So I had to learn everything from the ground. Like I didn't know what a grip was or a gaffer or what an avid, you know, back then an avid, I didn't know what cutting film meant. I knew nothing. I remember <laughs> telling me, could you order Dolly and track? And I just thought I was hello Dolly. I didn't know what it, what, what it was. Wow, you know, it was, really cold, really. Yeah. Huh. And then, so, so the first film I did with him, we had offices on Barham. If you know, if you're going up the hill, on that next to the liquor store, we had those those cabins or whatever they were bungalows, and I walked in and it and I was Peter was there at, with Cheech and Chong, and so the first film I did was Cheech and Chong still smoking, <laughs> and that was my foray into the film business. What did you What did you do on the movie? I was I was Peter's assistant producer's assistant. And they, they filmed it uh, outside of LA. And so a lot of it, you know, I sat out with the editors and the office people, and that's where I really learned. You know, I asked the editors every question I could think of, like, what are you doing? How are you doing it? What does that mean splicing? You can just cut that piece of film and put it back together. And that, you know, I would call, if he would tell me to order track or things like that, I would call the companies and I would say, I know nothing about what I'm talking about. Can you teach me? So I wasn't afraid to look foolish. You know, I wasn't because I thought it was the only way I was going to learn. And they were so kind. Everybody was so kind to me. I think that's the most important thing I took out of all of my years in L.A. was I thought that, I mean, like working with you guys, everybody that I worked with, if we treated each other respectfully, like we still have a relationship today because we weren't those obnoxious screaming maniacs that we worked with. And I I saw Peter leave, and I by example, I never saw Peter lose his temper. I never saw him berate anybody ever. And I thought that's the guy that I want to, you know, emulate. I guess your graduate degree was in obnoxious people when you went and worked for where we met. 
Mr. Silver. Silver Pictures. You know, it was no, it wasn't Gil actually. It was on a, a movie that Peter produced with a guy named Adam Fields. Oh yeah. And they and it was called Whoopie Boys. It was a silly little movie with uh Paul Rodriguez, yeah, and Michael O'Keefe. And I had an a little office between Peter on one side and Adam on the other, and Adam was a screamer. Mm. And I remember one time watching throw a stapler at his assistant. And I just thought, are you kidding me? And so I walked into Peter's office and I said, this guy just threw a stapler at her, you know? And and he just said, well, that will never happen to you. If that, if, if anything happens from that side of the room, let me know. Um, but that's, I think he was the first person that I saw go off the chains like that, you know? And I just thought, What's wrong with him? What what's what's he so insecure about that he has to act like that? In you know? retrospect, perhaps part of the oddity was that Peter accepted it. Sure, sure he did because it was accepted. It was what well, was was Paramount. I think we were we're at the Paramount lot, and I just you know I was shocked because I thought. He needs to be berated. He needs to be fired. He needs to apologize to that girl. What? And he didn't. None of it happened. Outrageous male behavior had become had, had long since been accepted on that right. side of the camera. Really, was there obnoxious? Wasn't really a problem. It was. It was even back then. It was celebrated to a degree. A a woman certainly could never go anywhere near that. I mean, you know, you know the last thing anyone wanted was to be difficult. Well, it was only tolerated. It was only tolerated if they if they wanted something that you, they thought you had. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't tolerate it. They just throw you away. Mm. But if they had, if you had something that they wanted, if Adam was producing something that they wanted, then they would tolerate it. And the bigger the bigger the person was in success. Uh, with making money for the studios, the more right. opportunity they had and the more toleration the studios had with those kinds of people. Indeed. Well, you know, if you or I had tried to pull off that kind of shit, we would have, they'd have showed us the door very quickly. So, you, you know, we, it's just as well, we, uh, we never tried to pull off that shit. Well, but I think it goes more to your character too, don't you? I mean, yeah. I think. God, I hope so. You know, I, I, no, I really do, because, I mean, I've worked for some women that were not very nice either. And mm. and I refuse to be the person, too. You know, um, I guess I learned how not to act more than how to act. In, in, in essence, conquering this town, this business is a problem that we all solve in our own particular way. Mm. And, you know, I, I think in the case of some women, they see that, all right. One way to do it is to emulate the men who do it. Why not? You know, what, what have you got to lose when doing the opposite, obviously, is not is not how to play. Right. Uh, it's right. it's not, you know, it, it, as a as a strategy, it's it's logical. It, it makes sense. And there are you know, it's hard. It's a hard thing to pull off. Some women do, but the margin for error is so is so non-existent. That's that's the problem, and that's not fair either. No, and I and I think for me, starting out as I did, um, I 
was so curious. My mind was so curious about learning. So I, I almost, I think over, overdid it almost times, you know, I would stay and work 14 hours, 16 hours to learn something mm. because I never wanted to be the girl in the office. Do, do you know what I mean? I didn't want to just be that girl or for somebody to think, oh, she's cute and young. And so she must be sleeping with somebody, you know, because that was that was a going around, too. And I said, yeah, no, that's never going to happen. <laughs> you know, that's never going to happen. And I also think it was the, the 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 beginning, you know, my I had an Italian father and three brothers and I they they taught me street smarts from a little girl, you know. Yeah. And what did what did your dad do? My dad, my dad worked for General Electric and then he oh, but he hated it. And then he became a coach at a university here um for about 37 years. He was he coached my dad was an athlete his whole life, his whole life. And he, he coached baseball, he coached golf, he played baseball, he was a basketball referee. I mean, he just, he, he lived and breathed athletics, as did my three brothers. Mm. And I went, you know, down that dark road of the arts, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yikes. But getting back to our, our friend Joel, um, I first met him on Die Hard 2. So it, it got around... LA is only it can that I was a pretty smart little cookie. And I, I quickly moved up to production coordinator on a lot of big films. Mm -hmm. And one of them was Die Hard 2. And so he wasn't, we were filming that when we our production offices were at Fox. So he was still at Warner's, you know, so he wasn't there all the time. But when he came in the door, it was like, you know, you guys know that because it was the pajamas. Remember the pajama outfits? And it was like, you know, it was like the Matrix, the Matrix walking in in the room. And our, um, our, our, our first assistant director on Bordello of Blood always referred to Joel as the pajaminator. Because <laughs> yeah. he was Canadian, so he pronounced it pajaminator. Yeah. But that was my first encounter with him. And that film had nothing but issues because it was snow christmas at snow you know dire too and everywhere we went the snow melted and so back then this is pre-computers right so as a production coordinator i'd get those 7 p.m phone calls that we got to move the entire cast and crew to another city and i just by the third move i think it was like somebody just blow my brain out you know and we finally shot it in moses washington i think that was our final destination and we had to rent the 737 or whatever the big plane was to get everybody there and the equipment and all of that. And, and I'll never, you know, I just never forget it because it was crazy trying to, you know, call at that point you had to call travel agents and say, I need, you know, 250 people to move. We just couldn't do it. So we, you know, what do you do? You rent a big old plane, you rent, rent a big plane and go. And that was because you were, you were chasing snow. Chasing snow. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. Our, our production, everybody was scared to death of Joel. Everybody on the crew, probably the cast too. But I'll never forget, I got one of those 1 a.m. phone calls from our production designer, John Vallone, who unfortunately died some years ago. Um, and so that 737 or 767, whichever it was that we rented, we used that as our plane. We had to paint the whole thing, you know, put the new logo on it. And around one in the morning, he called me and woke me up and he said, it's raining and the paint is 
dripping off the plane. And I said, <laughs> what do you want me to do? Like, I'm a production coordinator. He goes, you have to tell Joel. I said, I'm not telling Joel. You call him and wait. Nobody would. They thought, you know, I have some power here. I said, you guys call him and tell him. I'm not going to tell him that the plane we're shooting tomorrow, the paint's running off of it. But it was just, you know, I was like, I'm not the fixer here. I can't be that person. But it just was shocking to me that, you know, there was that aura of him, even when at the, on that film, that he was unapproachable because he'll kill you. <laughs> he'll kill you if you make a mistake, you know. And I mean, I'm sure you, you guys have seen a lot of that, too. We all have stories and scars. <laughs> yeah. So after that movie, they offered me a job at Pilgrim Pictures, and I turned it down. I turned it down because I didn't want to be an office person. I was always on a set. What interactions so, did, but what interactions did you have with Joel that made him reach out to you? He would just watch, see me work. And I think he saw that I didn't take too much crap from anybody, but that I also just put my nose down at the work. I wasn't trying to, you know, make friends or influence people. I was, I was a really hard worker. And I think it's part of, you know, being a type A personality or something. You know, I wanted to prove my worth maybe. And uh, so he just, he saw that, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm going to sidebar here for a second because it's, it's, you're, you're making me think, think you know, Gil and I witnessed something where we once took a car ride with Joel, I think going <laughs> into the second season where yeah. we just had to, this was before, we were in pre-production on the second season. We just had to ask some questions. And we showed up at right. like three o'clock in the afternoon. It's, it's cool at our heels and cool at our heels. And finally, six o'clock, he makes us go with him to his dentist so we could think we can finally have the conversation that we need to have about stuff. Right. And of course, he gets onto the phone as soon as he's into the goddamn car. And, and among the people that he calls is, is Donald Trump. And he invites Donald to do an episode of Tales from the Crypt. Send me a script, says Donald. Fuck, oh, fuck him. We, we never sent him a script, oh. I'm happy to say. Anyway, uh, <laughs> we get to the dentist. And still, we haven't had a chance to talk to Joel. He said, come up to the office, come up to the office. We come up to the dentist's office. We sit in the office waiting for him to have the crown replaced. That is why we're going to the dentist. And when the, he comes out, the dentist pitches us an idea for Tales from the Crypt. Uh, we walk back down to the car. Still no time to, 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 to do the ideas. We have to stop at his at his uh, Frank Lloyd Wright house in just above in, in WeHo. Uh, yep. Before I think there's something there's some event that he's going to with his girlfriend at the time. I think it was Lisa, and uh, we stop at the house. We still have not had a chance to talk to him. <laughs> and if there's there's Gil, me, and Reggie, we're in the dining room as he Reggie, in, <laughs> and he heads into the into the bedroom. And whatever he said to her, now you can hear everything. She right. starts to rip him several new assholes. And he is nothing but humana, humana, humana. And finally, he emerges from the bedroom and says, uh, she's going to join me later. And we get back in the car and we drove in utter silence. The rest of the way to Warner Brothers, because obviously Joel was not going to talk to any. He had been reduced to nothing. His girlfriend did that. I'm wondering, okay, Joel's relationship with women, though he was a domineering bully, we saw, heard with our own eyes, a woman reduce him to nothing. Um, what was, you might not know this, but you might, so I'm asking, do you, what was his relationship with his mom? 
he told me once <laughs> in front of lots of people that I can't remember what movie was coming out. And he said, we've got to win the weekend. We've got to win the weekend. And I said, well, what if we don't? And he said, Jackie, I'd kill my own mother if I could have a, if I could win the weekend. <laughs> and then he did. So I, and then he did. That's how he won the weekend. <laughs> and I just said, okay, then. All right. I said, no, you wouldn't. And he said, really? You don't think so? You know, and that was, that was it. But he, he was drawn to you as someone he wanted to work for him. Yeah. It, because you were a person who did not take a lot of shit. Once you went to work for him, it's not like you, you didn't change. You were exactly the same. I don't take no shit person. You always were. And he didn't fire you at the beginning. I mean, you you left at the end of the day, jumping to the end of the story, you left of your own volition, didn't you? Yes. He did not fire you. No, but I'll tell you a funny story about how he hired me. So that time I turned it down. And I think I went and I forgot. I did a picture with Peter. And then after that, I went to Portugal with a friend of mine for a month. I said, I got to get out of this movie business. <laughs> this is killing me. So I went to Portugal for a month. And I, you know, this was, you know, we got to remember, we didn't have the all the technology that we have now. And my friend's son was one of those uh, high divers that you see off the Acapulco. And so he was doing a high diving show in the Algarve area of Portugal. And so we were there and my hand to God one night late, because everybody goes out late in Europe, as you know, and I get, well, there's a knock at the door and they said, Jackie, there's a telegram for you. And I thought, oh my God, my mom or my dad, I mean, it was from Joel. It was from Silver Pictures. You have to call me. And I said, "How did you find? How did anybody find me? I'm not. I'm not lying." And it was the number. And we had no phones there. You know, we were in this rented house, and I had to go into the city the next day and call him. And it was about coming to join Silver Pictures again. And at that time, I said, well, I'm in Portugal. And when I get back into town, I'll give you a call. But he found me in Portugal. And I'm at, sure one of my assistants did. At, at the time, Joel Silver was a very powerful, big, powerful producer. He was he was huge. This is yeah. a huge, powerful producer. Really jumping through hoops or getting his people to jump through hoops rather than be screamed at to find you. You know, yeah. Jackie, I once, I once took a cruise in the Mediterranean mm. and I said to Joel, I'm going, I'm going away for a week. He said, what do you mean you're going away for a week? Well, I said, I'm going away for, it. I just got to get away. I can't, I can't take. So he goes, okay, but I, I got to get, I got to get an international phone. I'll get it for you. You have <laughs> to have an international phone. Now in those days, an international phone was like the size of a suitcase. I mean, it was like, a, it looked like a walkie talkie and it, you pull out the, the phone. It's like this big. And then you pull out the antenna. Yeah. So I said, Joel, I, I don't want to take a phone. He goes, no, 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 no. You got to you got to take the phone. So I tell Jeannie and, and she says, oh, OK, if you have to. So I take this phone on the on the boat. And I have to carry it with me. I take it out of the suitcase and I'm carrying this big clunky phone and it rings and it's Joel. And he goes, I need you to get back here right away. I said, I, I can't get back. I'm, I'm on a boat. I'm on a cruise, Joel. I can't, on the ocean. I, I can't swim. You know, I'm in the middle of the Mediterranean. No, no, you got to get back here. I go, Joel, I can't. 
So we hang up and I put the phone back in the suitcase figuring, okay, that's my phone call. I won't get any more. And I finish the cruise and I go back to LA and I go into the office and he looks at me and he goes, where have you been? Where, 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 what happened to you? I thought the boat sank. I said, the boat sank? Why would you think the boat sank? He said, well, because I called you like a half a dozen more times and, and there was no answer. And I said, really? Oh, something must have been wrong with the phone. <laughs> <laughs> My God. But it was that jump thing, you know, that you need to jump when I tell you to jump. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and we didn't. And, and that's, no. what caused, and that's, that's what caused a lot of problems for me with him and our and our constant state of argument. Yeah. Well, but what I mean, you guys knew him longer than me. What do you think it was? I mean, do you think that was just temper tantrums from a childhood or did you do know? I don't know nothing about his childhood at I, all. I I have a memory, Gil. <clears throat> and maybe it, well, we had a conversation with Sharon Stone mm -hmm. about Joel. And I remember she told us a story about his father, actually. And Joel, even back when he was a kid, you know, among his idiosyncrasies, he like he was a collector of stuff. I guess if, if I'm remembering the story correctly, he he, he loved to go to uh, garage sales and, and swap meets and stuff like that. And the particular things he's looking for, I'm not entirely sure what, but there was an object that he had that his dad got rid of. Mm. And Sharon, there was a, I guess the question about Joel, Joel, you know, figuring out Joel, it, it seemed to come up in that conversation. And what I, what I vaguely recall her positing was a, this is his uh, rosebud sled yeah. uh, explainer that something in him, that something was taken away from him when he was a kid and he was always trying to get it back. Well, first of all, Gil, do you remember this conversation? Am I making this up? No, I think I remember it with Sharon. I do. Uh, he likes stuff. He likes stuff. Yeah. I mean, we know lots of stuff. He's There's a lot of, uh, of uh, cane in, in the way he acquires houses. And yeah, absolutely stuff. He's, he's, he's on that. He's not quite on that scale, but I don't know. Yeah, but this conversation isn't to psychoanalyze Joel. This is a this is no, to psychoanalyze I, Jackie. <laughs> yes, indeed. But but wrong with me? What was I thinking? No, I I think you know when I first started there, I had no idea what I was supposed to do because, like I said, I never had worked in the office. I was always on set with Peter, and so they gave me this big office in the building. You know, next to we had those three buildings on the Warner lot, and I said, what. Well, Michael Levy then and you know I said what am I supposed to do just go meet with Bill Young <laughs> go meet with Bill Young and I said who the hell's Bill Young you know and he was the head of production for Warner's so I'd meet with them and I'm like what the hell I don't know what what I'm supposed to be doing here you know and then all of a sudden the phone would just be ringing and I realized I think I was kind of the the, the referee but maybe the peacemaker because oftentimes his office would say, Joel wants you to return these calls. So, I, and then when I got to talk to the people, I think that that anger and craziness came out and and I had to kind of like smooth it, smooth the water a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, and you, so it was like, I was always the girl, I'm gonna have my girl get back to you. I'll have my girl get back to you. 
but you were more like a fixer. I was the fixer. Yeah. I was the, the leave Schreiber. What, what's it? Ray Donovan. But yeah, I yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Mike, you know, Mike Levy, it, Mike Levy in his own way was a fixer. <laughs> he was a fixer. Yeah. In a very bizarre way. Yeah. You know, a very bizarre way. But that was, when you think about those three buildings, the dysfunction, I mean, you guys saw it, you know, those kids would be sitting at a desk at nine o'clock at night. And I would mm. be leaving because my, you know, I was working on five pictures at the same time and tells from the crypt, you know, looking at dailies and I'd walk in, I go, what are you kids doing here? And he wouldn't let them go. You know, they just sat at their desks. And I thought, what the hell is that control? What is that? You well, know, I, I used to have a couple of, a couple of occasions where that those same kids were in the office and apparently waiting for me to contact them and give them some information, which I didn't know there was some any urgency. And I would finally I would either get a call from one of them or I would call into the office and they would say, Oh, Gil, can you can you just tell us this or that or the other? Because and I go, Why? And they said, Because we we have to wait here until until we hear from you. And yeah. I would say, What? Go home. You don't hear from me. Go home. I'm telling you to go home. Okay. I'm telling you to go home. And they would do it. And sometimes I would hear about it, like to Joel would say, "You can't do, you can't tell them that." Yeah. And I would just, and I would just laugh at him and go, "Yeah, I did. What do you mean I can't tell them that? I told them to go home. Watch my lips. Go home. You see, Joel, I just said it. I can say that, and they go home. And then he would say, "No, I don't want them to go." And then we would get it, and then he and I would get into a fight about it. I, I have to say, you know, besides all the criticisms, I learned so much from Peter about the job of making a film and who, you know, what everybody did and what he did as a producer. So I learned a lot of all of that, but from Joel, I have to say, I learned about the art of making a deal. Mm. Like I listened to his conversations, talking to agents and the studio and going back and forth and they want this much, but we can only give it. So I would, you know, I learned the art of the deal from him. Right. He, was a, he was a very brilliant businessman. And it was all about making that deal. And he did not like that word, no, as you both know. That, that you know, what do you mean? You don't want to do my movie. And mm. so from that, that was that was the part that, that, I, that I didn't learn from Peter because Peter did that in a much quieter way. Right. But with Joel, that was really, he, he was a deal maker, you mm. know? Yeah. And, and but, it, but it was just done in such a, Crude way. way, a crude, a very crude yeah. way. Yeah. Like those first couple of months, and they said, you know, you need, you need to be our eyes and ears on Tales from the Crypt, and and I just remember, you know, that's what were you one of the first shows for HBO, or was HBO around for a bit? Because I don't remember. They had done two shows before Tales from the Crypt, uh, first in ten, which is football oriented, right. And and uh, Dream On, Brian Ben-Ben's show. Which, oh, I remember that. Right. I... They were basically ordinary TV shows with tits and the word fuck. That's really yeah. all that differentiated yeah. them. They, yeah. were, they were still ordinary TV shows in every other respect. Uh, and then the the uh, uh, our executive producers, the Crip Partners, got together and suddenly you had a bunch of Hollywood big guy, you know, big shots saying we want to do a TV show and every episode's a TV show. Uh, every episode's a, a, a little feature film. 
Well, at that point, you know, the movies were over here and TV was right. over here. They, they had nothing to do with each other. Right. Uh, you know, if, if you, a Tom Hanks would go from TV into movies or Robin Williams would go to TV into movies. If you were heading in the other direction, it's because it was the end of your career. And so this was a radical departure that movies on TV, we've told the story here uh, at uh, the screening, at the, the cast and crew screening. Uh, for the first three episodes, you know, there was Donner's Dig This Cat, He's Real Gone, uh, Walter's The Man Who Was Death, and all through the all through the the, the house, uh, Bob's terrific episode. And after I think one of the episodes, of, uh, one of a couple of crew are sitting talking. One of them says, "Wow, that's great TV," and the other crew member says, "That's not TV; it's HBO." And the HBO execs in the row ahead turned to look at them and went, "Oh my God, they had just that's heard." Their- that was that slogan. became their slogan. That be, and that was what Tales from the Crypt did for HBO. It it took them because this was not just a TV show. This was bigger. It was a movie. I mean, they were movies, really. Mm-hmm. Now, when we started, though, when when I started with you guys, were we in Venice first or the Valley first? I forgot. I think we were in Venice. Yeah, right. And yeah. then the at, the a, at the A1 at the A1 Globe on uh, Venice and Robertson. Right. Right. Which is and now in Al- which is now in Albertson. <laughs> yeah, we, I remember moving to the valley and it was, was easier for me because I could didn't it wasn't so far to drive from Warner's, you know. Right, but right. I, I mean I think I told you guys that the first time I came on the set, it was such a finely run machine. And but I was in awe of the Crypt Keeper, you know, with Kevin Kevin Yeager's, you know, Crypt Keeper and and yeah. the, and John Kassir and all of that. It was just it was something that I'd never seen before. And mm-hmm. I thought this this is pretty astounding. And so when I went back, he said, what are you going to tell me? What are you going to report? What you know, what's what's going on? I said, they don't need my help at all. I'll look at the dailies every day. And if I see anything that you need to know about, I'll let you know. But. The other thing that really opened my eyes to it that you guys did is created A-list actors to go to HBO. I got calls from every agent in town to be on Tales. Everybody, everybody wanted to be on your show. And they were. Well, you know, that's one of the things we told Joel. You know, we we said, you know, and we want to go after stars. And he said, you're not going to get stars because HBO is not going to give you any breakage. And I said, did I say anything about breakage? I said, I want them to be on the show because I'm going to go after actors. Well, what are you going to do? What are you? How are you going to get them? I said, I'm going to give a dramatic actor a comedic part and a comedic ah. actor a dramatic part. And I'm going to kill somebody who's never been killed before. And he, looked, before. and he looked at me and he said, that's not going to work. You're never going to get anybody. I, I said, I, I want to try. I need you to say I, I can do that. And if you'd say no, then, you know, go get somebody else to do the show because I, this, I, I really want to do that. I think I think we can do that. And finally, he just said, I don't care what you do. Just you got to make up the million dollars from last year. And 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 you got to make these little half hour movies. Because I remember just Joel and Donner being influential. I don't really remember Zemeckis or Walter Hill or I don't even remember who's the, uh, who was well, the fifth yeah, David Geiler. Um, yeah. Who's no longer with us now. Um, no, uh, Walter would direct. Bob yeah. would direct. Um, and but they had nothing to do with the show really, um, and and Dick and Joel 
really were involved with running the show from the perspective of talking to me and Alan and from their offices being so close together on the lot. Right. Right. And Matt, Matt, uh, what was Matt Tay, 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 Back. Tay, Back was really was walking point for Silver Pictures and, and Scott Nimmerfro walk point for, for Dick. Dick, yeah. Uh, you know, we had because we went aboard at the beginning of the third season because the second season was a chaotic mess that went a, a million dollars over budget and and there was no there was no deficit partner, so HBO had yeah. had paid for it out of their pocket. And then you know the night before the, the night before the the cast and crew part of the the wrap party, uh, that's when the executive producers were handed the financials and saw that there were a million dollars in in the hand uh, in the hole get out your checkbooks boys uh they canceled the rap party <laughs> and, and then they fired everybody you boys that'll show you <laughs> that's going to make up the million dollars there there was one more year on the contract and and so gill and i were supposed to see it out but we never saw it that we never saw it that way and and yeah. you know our our whole approach was to reinvigorate as much as we po- as much as we possibly could as as Gil said and and my my question as when when Barry Josephson finally walked into the room uh, after making his wait for an hour was hey uh, what does the crypt keeper do when he punches the clock at the end of the day and he goes home to his crypt all right what are <laughs> you know what are his friends what are his likes and dislikes what does he have for dinner what does he watch on TV who are his friends and pals. And, you know, the first two seasons, he was a puppet with a great voice, but no interior life. And that's right. what we, you know, perversely, uh, people have tried to redo Tales from the Crypt. They've, there's been a desire to redo Tales from the Crypt over the past couple of years. M. Night Shyamalan tried to redo Tales from the Crypt. I think he got, what did he get, an option on the comics? And he he didn't understand, he didn't understand the franchise. The yeah. EC comics are very important. That's the source material. But it wasn't until the Crypt Keeper became the Crypt Keeper. And that started in season three. That suddenly Tales from the Crypt became the franchise that it is today. And though M. Night had access to the comic books, the Crypt Keeper in the comic books is a is an old white guy with stringy hair. Mm-hmm. Separate piece of IP, the, the, the puppet, and the voice and the interior life that that uh, that Kevin, John, Gill, and I created, and so what what no one really understands is that really the EC Comics aren't the franchise the Crypt Keeper is, and whoever controls the Crypt Keeper really controls the franchise, and that alas is Joel. No kidding. No That's kidding. why there's never been a. A new version of it. I mean, I've, I've been asked by the estate over the past 20 years to bring it back, that they would support that because I had a great relationship with Bill Gaines. And they they said, right. oh, my dad, my dad loved you. I mean, he just loved the two of you. And I, I said, but do you really have the rights? Because I don't. And they said, yes. And of course, they didn't have the rights. And it got oh, into a God. real it, it was just a mess. And then M. Night, Alan, uh, was brought in by TNT. Because they were they were bullshitted into thinking that the rights were available. Oh no! And they lost okay. they, and they lost like over a million dollars paying M Night. And then one day they get a phone call saying, "You guys don't have the rights." Oh my gosh! Because you know, 
It's very funny. I'm on the uh, film board here of Northwestern Pennsylvania. We have questions every, about. We have questions about that. We're, we're going to get to every that. every October. We do a, a horror film festival called Eerie E E R I E Eerie Horror Film Festival, and I was like, God, I would love to get the Crypt Keeper to come to that because it's just the you know it's such a great it's such a great thing um, to watch these. I mean, it's crazy to me because the first year, I think I'm, this will be my third year and I've been sponsoring the best of the fest film and I give a money award. And, and last year it was from somebody from Spain, you know, so we're getting people from all over the world doing these, these horror films. And it's when, really interesting. When, when do you do that? We're going to be this year. It'll be at the Warner theater, that wonderful Warner. And I think this year it's October 3rd and 4th. And I was like, maybe we could do something with you two guys, you know, do a Zoom or something. And, uh, you know, just be these these kids just eat it a lot. You know, they eat it a lot because. Oh, we know. Here we is know. Not, we a, not known for its, as a film mecca, you know, but, but they're starting. And I there's some really talented young filmmakers here that mm -hmm. I've been. In fact, I have a. I have a meeting with, uh, after our, our talk, I'm going to go meet with them because they wrote a script and I said, how much money do you think you have to film? You know, it's going to be a very low budget. And I said, well, why don't you add 10 to the end of that zero, you know, another 10 zeros because the script you just wrote is huge, you know? And so I'm trying to show them that you cannot have 4,000 extras in a low budget film. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But I, but I really love working with them because you just see the desire that I had in my eyes. And I thought sure. today, I thought today, maybe that's why I came back. Maybe mm -hmm. I came back to help these kids, you know, pursue their dreams like Peter helped me. And when I lost Peter, Peter was in a horrible car, uh, a taxi accident in New York several years ago. And when he died, I just, a part of me died because Peter mm -hmm. not only changed my life, I think he saved my life, you know, he gave me purpose. Mm -hmm. And so maybe, you know, not to be, I'm not going to be so esoteric. I love working with the young filmmakers because there's, they just want, they just want to know what we do. Yeah. And I'm, we're kind of old to them. You know what I mean? We did this before cell phones and, you know, we did those big black uh, breakdown sheets. Do you remember that? The strip boards and everything. Sure. And and, it, and it's just, it's lovely working with them. And I thought how great it would be for you guys to work with us one year because I just would the love it. The answer is yes. You know? Okay, good. I would love you to. An unequivocal but, yes. I think I'm speaking for both of us. Yes, Kim? Well, maybe. maybe I don't know. I'd have to talk to Jackie about the terms of us. You know, I have to give her a little. I have to give her a little Joel back. You know, you have to give me. A, you get paid the same thing I do, which is a big fat zero. <laughs> but it's just so lovely because some of them come in and complete. What do they call it now? Uh, when they would dress as characters, what's it cosplay. called? Cosplay. Cosplay. Yeah, cosplay. And the first time, the whole Warner, the lobby of the Warner Theater, they have vendors, and I see all this cosplay, and these kids just want to talk. They just, you know, this yeah. this podcast from Pittsburgh wanted to have, they wanted to talk to me about you guys. They wanted to talk about Tales from the Crypt, and we shared stories. So I think it would be wonderful. But get it, getting back to our, our, our little Joel is, I'll tell you another funny story. I was living in Santa Monica at the time with my dog and my boyfriend, and we had shot on the lot at Warner Brothers 
um, a piece with Madonna. Now I'd worked with Madonna on Dick, on Dick Tracy. So I got to know her pretty well because she used to come and use my little trailer space to, to conduct her business. And I think she's probably one of the smartest business women I've ever heard on the phone, you know? And, and so we shot this piece with her and I got a call on a Sunday morning from Joel, as you know, you're available 24 hours a day. He said, I need you to come to my house, you know, the, the house in West Hollywood and pick up this gift and take it to Madonna. And I said, on a Sunday, well, you think Madonna, I don't, she, we're not like, she's not on my, my phone list. You know what I mean? And he goes, no, 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 it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We had used a whole bunch of Harry Winston jewelry at the time for the shoot. So we had millions and millions and millions of dollars of jewelry. And so he decided that Warner Brothers should buy her a piece as a thank you for doing the thing. So I said to my boyfriend, we got to go to Joel's. We got to go pick up this piece of jewelry. We got to take it to Madonna's house. And he goes, are you, are you kidding me right now? And I said, no. So we went to Joel's and he gave me this box and it was beautifully wrapped. And so I, you know, we could never do it today with, with paparazzi and everything. So we drove to her house and, you know, security was there. And I said, hey, it's Jackie George from, you know, Warner Brothers. And I have a gift from Joel Silver. And I got to the door and her maid said, she's in the shower. Can you come back in a half an hour? And so we drove around, went to have a coffee or something and came back. And she couldn't have been nicer, but she came down in a robe and her hair in a turban. And I said, she goes, what are you doing? What are you doing here? <laughs> I said, Joel wanted me to give you this gift. And so she opened it up and it was gorgeous. It was this gorgeous, beautiful bracelet. And she said, well, don't go away. I want to give him something. So she comes up from down upstairs and a copy of her sex book. Remember that book she did, that tabletop book or whatever was it with that real set? And she took a silk kerchief and wrapped it and gave it to me and said, now I need you to take this to Joel. And I go, what the hell? I'm not like the Pony Express here, you know, on my Sunday off. And so I drove the damn thing back over to his house. And I said, okay, I'm going to go now. And he goes, where are you going? I said, I'm going home. It's Sunday. Oh, don't go. Because, you know, he, he never wanted to be alone. Do you remember mm -hmm. that? Yeah. He never liked being alone. And so I said, no, my boyfriend's in the car. My dog's at home. I got to go. So here, here's your gift. And, you know, but I'll never forget. It was like you had to be available 24 hours a day. And even at night when I, I would, I would feel guilty about leaving at seven, you know, after being there for 12 hours mm -hmm. and I said hey, okay I'm leaving I'll see you tomorrow where are you going home why why are you going home I said well my dog's there bring your dog to work I, I started bringing my big black lab to work every day because I felt guilty about leaving him home so often you know mm -hmm. but he never wanted me to leave he never wanted anybody to leave the office so that he's, was you he's, know he's he's, he's 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 like a kinder Jeffrey Dahmer <laughs> Yeah, that was Dom, that was Dom, that was Jeffrey Dahmer's explanation why he ate them. He just didn't want them to leave. He didn't want them to leave. Well, I got out without that happening. But it was just, you know, it was um, I don't know. It was I often wonder how 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 did we withstand it though? How did why do you think we did it? Why did we put up with it? That's a question. I'm not I'm not so sure. Uh my, my situation, I think, was a little different because, you know, we we worked together for, I think, 12 or 14 years on a lot of different projects. And yet the relationship never really changed. It was always confrontational. Mm 
In fact, my yeah. wife tell, my wife tells a story where, you know, she would always know the phone would ring. She would know if I was talking to Joel because my decibel level would go up 50 points. <laughs> and the whole conversation was an argument. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I would walk out on him. I would just go home. I would just say, I'm leaving, That's you know? And, and I would, you know, he, I once left a set downtown LA. We were making a movie called Double Tap mm -hmm. with Stephen Ray and Heather Locklear. And, you know, I just got really mad about something and I, with Joel, and I just said, I'm leaving. You can, you can come up, you can come down and run, you know, watch it yourself. And, and you can't do that. And we got into this big argument and I just hung, I just left. And, you know, nothing happened. And the next day, it was like nothing happened. I was waiting for me to come in and got fired or tell me, you know, whatever. And it was just, you know, we just, we just continued on. So it was an odd situation. I mean, my relationship with him was always um, very precarious and always confrontational. I do have to say, though, on on Richie Rich, we we shot in at the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina, and then we went up to Chicago to do stage work. And at that point, I I was I was told to, to hire Karen Fields. Do you remember Karen? Who, and I said to her, you're going to marry him. I said, he's in love with you. He's been in love with you as long as I've worked there. And they did, get, you know, as you know, they did get yeah. married. And yeah. And they have two they, two big kids. Two kids. But I, and I said, there's a reason I'm hiring this girl to work in the wardrobe that's never worked in wardrobe or whole. She, she was, remember, she worked for Steve Perry for a bit. Yeah. Remember him? Yeah. And but I knew they were going to get married. I really did. And I, and I saw it and they did. And I just thought, what I did she, he... what was it in her that, that made you think what she could tell him? He was in love with her. No, I just see like when he said, you got to hire, get this girl, get that girl on the crew, you know, get the, and, and I, it just, something sparked that I knew that he just had the hots for her. And I think it wasn't just a sexual thing. I think there was really some connection. Mm. And I told her that she goes, you're crazy. And I said, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you two are going to get married one day. I just saw it. Mm. But here, here's another funny story on Richie Rich. I'll never, so he, he didn't come off because um, he and Macaulay Culkin's dad did, there was, they didn't get along very well. So I was the, 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 the producer on set, right? And I'll never, he came to, he would come to set and he would fly in John Davis's dad's private plane, you know, cause John was the co-producer. And he came to set one day and he said, Jackie, so order me that beef jerky that I like. And I just looked at him, I go, I have, what are you talking about? What, I don't order beef jerky. I don't eat beef jerky. I don't know what, what beef jerky. He said, yeah, on that movie that I did like five years ago, they ordered me really good beef jerky from North Carolina. I said, you got four or five assistants. Talk to one of them. I, I don't I don't know from this beef jerky. Like, leave me leave me alone. So, you know, but it was just like you, it was like stuff they pull out of their butt, you know, like get me that beef jerky. Mm. You know what I mean? And I'm like trying to wrangle Macaulay Culkin to remember his lines because, you know, he was 13 years old and his father was nuts. And you know what I mean? It was just beef jerky, really, in the middle of this. I, you know, I, I thought, what the hell is that about? The juxtapositions could be 
<laughs> maniacal. Staggering. You know, it's funny. I just saw a, an interview that Macaulay Culkin did with, I think it was Barbara Walters talking about his childhood. And that on the film, I saw the divisiveness and the disgusting habit of a child actor. Like that kid, I at the end of at the rap party, it was at with a rap party at House of Blues in Chicago. And I said to him, I just want to take you home with me and let you have a normal life. I just felt so sad for that young kid. Mm. And, and he talked about that a lot in the Barbara Walters interview about, you know, like those kids don't even talk about the father anymore. And I just, that was one of the things I think that was mind blowing to me that what we allowed happen, like we said earlier, for the love of me, as long as the film was going to make money, and I felt maybe it was a maternal instinct, even though I never had kids, I never wanted kids, but I would watch this kid. I would see the angst in his face because of mm -hmm. his father's actions. And then coming on a set where maybe he didn't know the lines. He was never allowed to read a script. They never let him read a script. They just would do lines with him the night before. And he was supposed to go to set and know everything. And I just, but that was one of the things for me that I thought, are we doing this? Kids, thirteen years old. Why are we ruining this child's life? You know, there's a law, the Coogan yeah. law, which which had to they had to create legislation because this business was so abusive toward a young performer, and their parent was so abusive toward them too. Well, he was the breadwinner. He yeah, was of course, winner for the, for all seven children and the mother and the father. You know, um, same thing happened on Dick Tracy, the kid that played the kid. You know, his parent, he got cast. My mom was on, that was one of the times my mom came to set and she was so excited because one baby actually called me over. And the only reason he called me over is he said to the hair and makeup people, that's the color hair I want him to have was my color hair. You know? And my, I said, mom, trust me, he doesn't even know my name. So it's no big deal. But, but that kid too, his parents, brought him to the set. They rented an apartment at the, what were those Oakwoods, right? And they oh, hired the some young, yeah, they hired some young 20 year old kid to be his guardian. They never even met before. And I just, that was the other kid that I thought, they just dropped this kid off in Hollywood, you know, and let him do this movie. But, you know, at that time, the parents, they're allowed to take 20%, right? Or something with the Coogan law. Yeah. You know? Did you guys ever use kids in tales or was it always adults? I don't remember any children. I, we must have used kids, but I don't remember specifically. Very, very, very infrequently. I, I can't even think of, I, I yeah. we just didn't write scripts that had them in there because, you know, the subject matter was just too, too dicey. It was, there was, they were ancillary. And the, and, and the, and the rules of work were kind of yeah. difficult you know the hours no, yeah so i think we stayed away from that yeah there, there would have had to have been a really good reason to yeah. to do that. even when they we would do you know, however however we always thought we were dealing with kids even though their age might have been far succeeding hours 
They were 45. <laughs> right. Exactly. Kei Hui Kwan. We, we hired Kei Hui Kwan. There was that episode. Uh, 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 yeah, that was our that first season. So so you you were part of that. Uh, Mike, Michael. Oh, God. That was Undertaking. Michael, Michael Thaw. Michael Thaw directed. Yeah. Uh, it was was it Undertaking Pallor might have been. The, yeah. It was the episode. And that was. Oh, God. He was Benny Thaw's kid. And that was a, a favor to Donner. Right, because Michael, I guess, had worked in the editing room somewhere, and you know, yeah. he, and Donner knew his friend, his dad, really well. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, best laid plans. You know, the executive producers used Tales from the Crypt as a, a directing boot camp. If yeah, they, they did. Yeah, if they wanted to try a, a favor to somebody, or they wanted to try out a, a writer who they might want to, oh, maybe the writer could direct. We would be the the boot camp. Can they? Can't they? Or in a lot of cases, Gil was really good at teaching novices how to get through the the basics of directing um, how about joel directing well that's that's oh my god that that's that was that was holy shit I thought, I thought, oh poor gill yeah, that, that was that was <laughs> typical that was that was the epitome of having to school an unschooled director did, who had no interest ever- did you ever hear the story I tell about that? Because I would go to Joel and, and he was going to direct. I said, you know, Joel, on this show, you know, you're the director. You're, you're not the executive producer. And you have to listen to me. You understand that? <laughs> and he would say, yeah, 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 yeah. Get out of here. You know, yeah, yeah. So we get on the set and he, he had to have Jan DeBond as the DP. He couldn't use the DPs of course, that we had. Of course. So I said to Jan, is this going to, he said, don't worry about it. I'll get, I'll, don't, I'll take care of everything. Don't worry about it. And so we get on the set and I said to Joel, now listen, we take the show very seriously. So we don't allow cell phones. We don't allow phone calls. You can't, you can't be, you have, I need your full attention to directing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got, I got, I got it. So we get on the set, his phone rings and he answers it. And I go, put it away. He goes, he, he, he waves me off. I go, Joel, put the phone away. He goes, I'm on the phone. What's the matter with you? I said, no, no, you're on the set directing an episode of Tales from the Crypt. That's more important than whatever that phone call is. So stop. I'm not going to stop talking until you hang up. And he hang, hangs up and he gets really mad at me and he goes back to the set. And, you know, we, we would do this almost daily. And, and, he would, and then we got into an argument because he said, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't know better, I, I'd fire you on the spot right now. And I'd go, Joel, you can't fire me right now. Right now, you're a director on the show. I can fire you. You can't fire me. Next week, if you like, you can fire me. But not this week. This week, you're a director. And you listen to how we make our show. And we would get into these huge, crazy arguments on the set in front of everybody about how, no, you work for me this week. You can't fire me till next week. And Jan DeBont would just stand there looking at me going, <laughs> just, just don't get so emotional about this. Just don't get so worked up. Leave him alone. Leave him to me. I'm I'm directing the show for him, basically. And I and if, and eventually I I sort of you know said you know what do I care? My dad once said to me that I had more balls than all three of my brothers put together. <laughs> Maybe he was right, but I remember when I first started at Warner Brothers, in in Silver Pictures, and after a couple of months of being you know in office and reading fourteen scripts a week, going what hmm. the hell is this job? I, I remember. We got the green light for Demolition Man. And I walked in to his office and I said, hey, do you got a minute? And he said, yeah. And I said, uh, 
So this Demolition Man movie, he goes, yeah. And I said, I'd like to co-produce it with you. And I thought, where in the hell am I getting the balls to say this? And he goes, all right. He did. He said, all right. And he goes, I'll tell you one thing, though. You want to be a producer? Start acting like a producer. And I said, what does that mean? What does that mean? I said, I'm not going to act like you. That's for sure. I don't have that temperament. And I said, I'll, I'll do me. You do you, you know. And But he actually let me do it. And I mean, I did, you know, I just, I really cut my teeth on that. And I learned so much. Um, mm -hmm. But but a funny story is we decided that we had to go to Italy because Stallone was film. Stallone was cast in Demolition Man. So I think we either took the Warner jet or Tom Cruise's jet. Don't, don't ask. I don't know. So it was me, Joel, and our costume supervisor, Nick. I remember his name, Nick. And so we go to Rome and Stallone was like the Pied Piper. I mean, everywhere Stallone went, there were the people following him. And I said, okay, this is what it's like. And then Stallone said, we're going to go to Lake Como because Johnny Versace wants to do the clothes, you know, on Demolition Man. And I just said, Johnny Versace, like, what are we talking about? So anyway, we went to bed in Rome, right? And we're going to go to Milan and take the boat over to Lake Como. So that night, the production manager, line producer, Jim Herbert, God bless him, woke me up again because of the time difference. And he said, I just turned the budget into Billy Young. And I was there 10 or 14 million over budget. And I said, it's I'm it's like three o'clock in the morning. What do you want me to do? He goes, you need to tell Joel. I said, you need to tell Joel. You're the line producer, right? And I said, I'll tell him in the morning. I was half asleep. So I made sure I woke up at 7 a.m. He was he was already downstairs with Lee Sinson, who was an executive from Warner Brothers. Jensen was her father, I believe. Yeah, sure. So he started screaming bloody murder because the studio had gotten to him before I could get to him about the overage on the budget. And it was insanity, insanity screaming. And finally I said, are you done? What do you, and then he started yelling at me some more. I said, I said, Joel, if I made a mistake, I made a mistake. It was three o'clock in the morning. I should have woke you up. I don't go to a man's uh, hotel room at three o'clock in the morning. I'm not a dumb, not a dumb girl. And I didn't want to wake you up. And it went on. And finally I said, I made a mistake. Let it go. Let's move on. We can't fix this right now. We're in Italy. He's in LA. We'll figure it out. But taking it out on me, I mean, the overages are the overages, you know, maybe this trip to Lake Como is not the best thing we could be doing on the budget, you know, and, and I'll never, I'll never forget that. But it was like, what the hell is this my fault? You know, while he, like someone... while he is in the middle of indulging his actor, yes. he does not have to do at any point. Joel could be the adult in that room. He could be. So we get on the plane to Milan and we take a boat over to Lake Como. And I met Johnny Versace. We had lunch outside this 14th century villa. He couldn't have been sweeter. He gave me a tour. He found out I was half Italian. Gave me a tour of his place. And we met with his sister and her his sister's husband who managed it. And when they told me how much the wardrobe budget was going to be, I said, Joel, 
we can't use Johnny Versace. There's no way. There's no way. It's Johnny Versace. But I still have hanging in my office at home. He wrote me the sweetest letter, Johnny Versace. He called me Jacqueline. <laughs> you know, he wrote me a beautiful letter. And when he was killed, I was so, you know, really broke my heart because he was such a kind, kind gentleman. But I'll never forget that. And when Nick and I got on the plane to fly back to Rome, we had to fly back commercial, you know, God forbid, right? I said, what the hell just happened? Like, what are we doing? This movie is $15 million over budget and we're having lunch at Johnny Versace's house in Lake Como and and it's my fault, <laughs> you know? It became my fault. And I was like, wow, okay. Everything was your fault. Everything was my <laughs> fault. You know, it was always it was always that way. You know, they they took no responsibility for anything. It's always you, you did it. And I, and I would be sitting there going, I did what exactly? <laughs> I didn't even know about this was happening. We've we've told the story here several times of when Joel just went too far and Gil finally said that's enough and he almost broke Joel's phone. We've we've told that story. What what was your okay, Joel? My final straw. That's enough. Yeah. What was the final straw that, that, that broke it? My final straw was in the production office in Chicago of Richie Rich. And that was probably, I don't know the end of my reign there. I was on my third year of my three, three year contract. Now I had been up all night and it was 11 o'clock at night the next day. And I was waiting for script pages. And, you know, back then we had to Xerox them and let, slide them on their actors doors. Right. And at 11 o'clock, it was me and the production coordinator and a PA. And his assistant said, he's at dinner. I said, I don't care where he is. You have to get him. You need him to get on a phone and talk to me. Nothing. So finally I called back again and I don't remember who was on the desk. And I said, listen, I'm going to fall asleep on this desk. And this movie, we have no script for tomorrow's shoot. So he finally calls me. I'm in the, you know, screaming. I'm in the middle of this beautiful dinner. And I, I've been up for 24 hours. We have no script for tomorrow. I need your approved pages. And he said, you'll get my fucking, you know, pages when I'm ready to send them to you. And I said, first of all, I'm tired. Please stop screaming at me. I'll scream, you know, in his voice, you know, the rumbling voice. I'll scream at you if I want to. And I said, Joel, please just send me, fax me those pages. I got to get these to the actors. It's not fair. So it went on and on. And he wouldn't stop screaming. And I said, I'm going to hang out until you can lower your voice. And I hung up the phone. You know, two seconds later, another phone call. Bill's on the phone, going, nobody hangs up on me. Nobody hangs up on me. I said, well, I did, because nobody talks to me the way you're talking to me. And I said, I'm your person here. I'm trying to make the best movie possible for you. And I just want pages to give to actors, the director, the crew. Mm. And once again, he just started his tirade. And I said, Joel... I'm going to, I'm going to hang up. I'm not hanging up on you. I'm telling you, I'm going to hang up and I'll wait for the pages. So the next song calls, you're fired, screaming, you are fired. Get out of there, get on a plane. I said, you can't fire me. My contract's with Warner Brothers. Hmm. And I said, I will finish this film. And if we can hire, and if we can treat each other respectfully, we can never have this conversation again but please get me those pages and I will get that scene, those scenes done tomorrow. And eventually I got the pages. I finished the film 
And I went back and I told whoever, that Steve guy in the office, remember? I said, I will not be renewing my contract. I went to Bill Young and I said, I will not be renewing my contract. And his words to me were, how did you last so long? Mm. How did you last so long? Yeah. And that was the end of it. And I do believe, I don't know if it's true. I do believe I was blacklisted for a while. I do believe that. I think he put out, you know, even though I was his girl and I was the girl that got the job done, I think he did put out some shit about me. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, Peter was hired to produce Batman and Robin and he brought me on. And, um, but it was, it was, it was tough. That was a tough, you know, staying there and having to finish my contract out because it, the vitriol was horrible as you both know. And, and I thought, what the, what did I do wrong? You know, right. just, I did my job as best as I could do. And I just didn't deserve to be. And I thought nobody is going to talk to, if I don't ever work again, as long as I have, I can't let him speak to me like that. I just couldn't. Bill stood up to him. I stood up to him. And the only thing he could think of is, the, is to fire us. But then he needed me to finish the film. So I stayed there. We just stayed. I stayed in my building and he stayed in his, you know, and, and uh, that's the way it was. But he, you know, it just, I saw that and I thought, this is on me now. I can't, can't let this happen. And it was a tough, it was a tough road after that. You know, I thought for sure, what the hell am I going to do? I was still young. You know, I was like, what am I going to do? But I, you know, I, I found work. I got work after that. I went over to Scott Rudin's once because I was helped. Do you remember his, the guy, the kid that worked for Scott? Do you remember that at all? I can't think of his name, but I remember I had to go to Scott Rudin's for something. I think they wanted me to break a script down or something. And I saw the same behavior from that office. And I thought his name was Adam. His assistant was Adam. And I just said, oh, Adam, don't let this, don't let him do this to you. Don't. Luckily, I never had a Harvey Weinstein moment. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I, I think that I would have need him in the groin so hard. I don't think that, you know, I, I, I just was feisty. So I, I don't, I'm grateful that that never happened. But I was also smart, like, you know, don't, I'm not delivering pages at 3 a.m. to your hotel room. I'm not stupid. You guys were so good, you know, the integrity that you had and treated people so nicely. I mean, I really thought that. You, at least you treated me very fairly because I had no idea what the hell I was doing with channels from the crypt, you know, but you guys were really care. You, you really taught me about episodic television because I'd never done it before. And, and it was such a cool thing. And when I got to see Kevin Yeager's workshop and stuff, it was just like, you know, to this day, I mean, I've called, I've called Kevin a, a couple of times for some, some help on some small, you know, independent films mm -hmm. to make a couple of pictures and stuff. And, so, yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know. Have you ever heard any more horror stories or just stay out of that kind of life? I think we stay out of that kind of life. I'm just, yeah. I'm just I, I, you know, I've always, there have been incredible opportunities along the way that we've totally rejected and we've totally sort of went gone the other way or looked the other way and not gotten involved in it ourselves because that wasn't something that, you know, we were interested in. We. We were always very interested and very passionate about telling stories, yeah. making making it as good as possible, making it better than anybody else could make it. And that was really what would motivated us. It really wasn't anything else. And mainly my arguments with Joel and other people have always been about that. It's never been about the deal. 
or the money or the power. It's been about the story. And, and alas, that puts us into a, an unfortunate position because I guess we'll never climb. We'll never be a Joel. But then the good yeah, news is we'll never be a Joel. That's good. You know, I think that's good. And for me, it was the same thing. It was I never cared about making the millions of dollars. I, I wanted to make a decent living, you know, mm -hmm. and, and do this thing, do really good work. Um, and, and that I will forever be indebted to Peter McGregor Scott for because I didn't ever see him ever cross the line. He never crossed the line ever that I saw. And it was very funny because Peter loved redheads. And I said mm -hmm. to him, I think I'm the only redhead in Los Angeles that you haven't dated. Because he was more like a, an older brother to me, you know, just, mm -hmm. it, but never, you know, people always ask me, they thought, oh, you, you guys must be sleeping together. And I was like, he's like my brother, you know, I don't know. Well, that's, that's not what I was there for. I was never there to be that girl, you know, I just wanted to learn my, my, I wanted to be the girl sitting in the Warner theater at seven years old, learning how sure. this all happened. And it, you know, my dreams came true. I was very lucky, but I never became, you know, one of these big, huge, you know, Lauren Schuler donors. I never became that, but mm -hmm. my career was pretty amazing and I'm really grateful for it. And I, I think you guys too, you know, mm -hmm. remember, I mean, I just remember had such fond memories of Roger Reed. Do you remember Roger? Of course. HBO? Yeah. I mean, when I found I out, you know, I used to go visit him and then he got sick. And when he passed away, my heart broke because yeah. those are the those are my people. You know what I mean? I didn't want to go. I never wanted to hang out with Joel and Don stuff. I wanted to hang out with you guys and with Roger Reed and, you know, the DPs and stuff. I wanted to be, that was like, I was like one of the crew people, you know, even mm -hmm. though I got a producer credit, I really wanted to hang out with the people, you know? Go have yeah. a beer, have, you know, and and that was for me. I, I didn't care about going to the restaurant, you know. You know, I have the stories of meeting Johnny Versace. That's very cool and everything. But you know, everybody said to me, "Why didn't you keep in touch with Stallone? And why didn't you keep in touch with Arnold?" Because I worked with them all, mm -hmm. and it was just that wasn't my thing, you know. I mean, they were wonderful to be with, and like George Clooney on Batman and Robin, I couldn't have worked with a nicer actor in my life. But it wasn't that wasn't what it, what it was about for me. Right. I would hang out, with you know, which I think you guys probably did too. You know, yeah. I love the DPs. I loved I love learning all the different stuff, the lighting. And I remember working on Dick Tracy when Vittorio Storaro came over from Italy with his light mm -hmm. board, and that's who I hung out with. I hung out with him and the Italians because they, they like once again liked me because I was an Italian girl. You know, I'd mm -hmm. go out to dinner with those guys almost every night. They take me out to dinner and. I'd learn all these great things about lighting and and his his whole only using primary colors on Dick Tracy. And in fact, he gave me I still have it a signed book about his um, his work as a as a DP. And I thought, well, that's great, but it's all in Italian. I have no idea what it says, you know. But I mean, those were my people, you know. Those were my people. Among our executive producers, while Joel was always a challenge, Dick was was a pleasure. But he was one, a doll. Yeah, one one episode he threw a curveball at us at the last second, but oh, okay, okay, okay. Uh, but Bob was really, Bob was a pleasure to work for. I, what a, the most wonderful collaborator of all. Really, everything that I know about collaborating, I learned at that man's feet. 
yeah. he he really understood and understands how to get the very best out of everyone he's working with. Yeah. A very and, uh, opposite approach from, from Joel's. I love Donner. And I always asked him, Dick Donner, I used to say, how can you be friends with him? Because he was just like a big teddy bear. And I remember he'd invite me into his his uh, motor home and he had the massage chair. And right. he'd say, go sit, go sit in that chair for 20 minutes. You're a nervous wreck. And I'd sit in the massage chair and I'd say, how can you be friends with him? He goes, I don't take him seriously. You know, he just... There was a mutual respect, but Joel would never, ever speak to Donner like that. Never. Really not. There was real respect between Joel had for Donner. He really did, you know. Mm -hmm. But Donner, Dick Donner was, he was a real, he was a real mensch, as they say, right? Really. And yet, and yet, it, and, and yet it ended quite badly between Joel and Dick. They got into an argument about money. And Joel accused Dick of stealing money. And, you know, I being quite friendly with both of them and quite in their presence a lot, um, sort of got in the middle and tried to say, Dick, Joel wouldn't steal money from you. Why would he do that? He's got enough money. And then I became from both sides. I got hit on from both of them in terms of being mad at and yelling at. And finally, I said, you know something? You guys are crazy. I'm getting out of here. Yeah. Leave me alone. You guys figure it out or don't. But I mean, that's sort of how their relationship was. But it, it ended very badly where they wouldn't talk to each other. And it was just sad. This has been a wonderful hour and a half. You know, we, there's so much more to talk about because really I, I would also love to talk about the mentoring you've been doing the past couple of years at the Greater Erie Film Office, the Erie Horror Fest. We, we'd love to hear about that. Last year, we had George Romero's wife and daughter at the Horror Film Festival. Nice. And it went over huge. And it was really interesting. It was really, really interesting. And we, we know we got, we had like, you know, directors and producers from Children of the Corn and, you know, lots, lots of old, uh, we had the original, the original, my God, I'm just forgetting the name of it. Nosferatu. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. And we had the organist playing. We brought in the organist for the Erie Philharmonic and the Theater, and he did the score live while they were while we filmed Nosferatu. In the background, that's a picture of me and Peter McGregor Scott at a rap party on a Steven Seagal movie. That's me having way too many cocktails, dancing alone, and me picking up this young man and dancing with him too. And a friend of mine did those paintings for me and sent them to me. And I just was like, well, you should have probably had a few more cocktails. <laughs> 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 yes. So, but no, I would love to talk some more. Let's do it again. We've, we've scratched, we but scratched the surface, Jackie. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad you shared those pictures with us. I, I'd love, wish we could zoom in on them. But that's another person we can talk about, Mr. Steven Seagal. <laughs> oh, so I many. I did them all. I worked with them all. Let me tell you. <laughs> like I said, we've just scratched the surface. Thank yeah. you so much, Jackie. It was, that was great to talk to you. Now I get to go meet with my young filmmakers. Say hello for us. And Jackie, it was a delight to see you again. Oh, you it's know, so it's been so many, so, so long before, since we've we've seen each other. So thanks, thanks for doing this. And again, so thank, sure. so great to see you. You too. Have a great, great afternoon and the rest of your day and a nice weekend. Okay. Well, you too, Jackie. Thank you for everyone for joining us. We'll see you next time.
The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, by Gil Adler, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal the Crypt Keeper would have called terrible Crypt content.